Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. In part one of this podcast, we established the historical fact that in the last 40 to 50 years, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has seen itself and publicly and repeatedly proclaimed itself as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 of the stone cut out of the mountains without hands that would roll forth until it had broken all the kingdoms of the earth and had filled the entire world. This was during a time of unprecedented and phenomenal church growth in membership. Church presidents, including Spencer Kimball and Gordon B. Hinckley, proclaimed that the church would continue to grow until it filled the entire earth. We ended part one with the question of what will current church leaders do and what are they doing now that church growth has substantially decreased and is on the point of flatlining? What do they do with this backdrop and this background and this historically accessible record even on the church website of statement after statement by church leaders saying the church would continue to grow until it filled the whole earth? How will they deal with this crisis? that church growth is decreasing now. To the point that, in 2016, church growth was the worst it has been in over a century. In fact, 2016 marks church growth, even using the church's own statistics, as the worst it has been since the year 1909. So, in answer to that question of what the church leaders will do, well, the first thing that they tried to do was not talk about it, not emphasize it, not mention it to members of the church. But then something remarkable happened in November of 2011. And that was when the church historian, Elder Marlon Jensen, opened his mouth and admitted publicly and was recorded as saying that the church has not seen the kind of apostasy it is currently seeing since the days of Kirtland. And that is, of course, a reference to 1837 in Kirtland, Ohio, when there was a massive disaffection of members from the LDS Church, largely due to the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society, i.e. the bank that Joseph Smith had started in Kirtland, where a lot of members were strongly encouraged to invest in the bank. It ended up going belly up, with the result that many members lost not only their money, but also their testimony, and left. The format at which Elder Marlon K. Jensen made this comment was a meeting of the John A. Witso Association for Mormon Studies. It was held at Utah State University on November 11, 2011, and after the presentation, there was a question-and-answer session. This is the question that prompted the answer from Elder Jensen. Quote, Has the church seen the effects of Google on membership. It seems like the people who I talk to about church history are people who find out and leave quickly. Is the church aware of that problem? What about the people who are already leaving in droves? That is the question. Here is the answer from Elder Marlon Jensen. Quote, the 15 men, by which he obviously means the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, the 15 men really do know and they really care. Mark that first part of the sentence because Elder Jensen is not only going to admit that this is a huge problem in the church, he is going to admit that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles know 
about this problem in the church. The 15 men really do know, and they really care. Elder Jensen goes on, and they realize that maybe since Kirtland, we never have had a period of, I'll call it apostasy, like we're having right now, largely over these issues, period, end of quote. What are the issues that Elder Jensen is referring to? Well, in the context of the discussion, it's the issues relating to problems with church history that are beginning to become more and more widely known among members of the church, largely because of the easy access of information made possible by the Internet. And here is another question and answer from the same meeting. Question, is knowledge of those leaving the church through anecdotal means or from statistics? Elder Jensen, in response, says that he has received much information anecdotally. He also said, quote, The church has a very progressive research and information division with tremendous public opinion surveyors. And the church is constantly running surveys and employing consultants that do focus groups on a variety of topics, but especially on the ones that we are talking about right now that are so sensitive to the faith of members. Now, I will add in here that it is a surprise to some to find that a church that is ostensibly led not just by one prophet, but by 15 prophets, that the church nevertheless has to run surveys employ consultants, do focus groups on any issues, not to mention issues that are sensitive to the faith of members. That's a surprise to many members, but that is the way things are. Apparently, the prophets are not in touch with God enough to not need consultants to do focus groups to find out what's going on among the members of the church. Elder Jensen goes on, where has the prophet laid his emphasis right now? It's on something called the rescue. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And with good reason. This is Elder Jensen saying, and with good reason, because we are suffering a loss, both in terms of our new converts that come in that don't really get established in the church, as well as very faithful members who, because of things we're talking about, as well as others, are losing their faith in the process. It is one of our biggest concerns right now, period. End of quote. So, in November 11th, 2011, Elder Marlon Jensen goes on record as saying, not only is the church suffering great loss even among people who have been members of the church and are firmly established in the church for a long period of time, he also makes this important connection, which we'll see more of later, that this loss of membership is directly associated with the availability of information related to sensitive issues about church history. There is this correlation between doubt or finding information that is negative about the church and leaving the church. And that's the problem, which he also says the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, the 15 men, really do know and they really care. And indeed, Marlon K. Jensen was in a unique position to know about this because one year earlier, he was sent to Sweden by the leadership of the church in order to conduct what has come to be known as the Swedish Rescue. Not only that, it is important to note that Elder Marlon Jensen is the church historian at the time, and he is also a general authority. He is a member of the 70. He is in a position to know that the 15 men at the top of the church do know about these issues and says that they really care and that they realize that maybe since Kirtland, we've never had a period of apostasy like we're having right now, largely over these issues. So, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, they know all about this. 
and they know what's going on. They know that the church is hemorrhaging members, and they know it's over these issues related to church history and finding access to negative information about the church, information that historically the church has done its level-headed best to try and prevent the members from finding out about. Now, the Swedish rescue was conducted November 28th of 2010. As I say, it was almost exactly one year earlier before the statement by Elder Jensen, November of 2011 at Utah State University. On November 28th, 2010, two general authorities, or at least I should say, Marlon Jensen, the church historian, and Elder Richard Turley from the church historian's office were sent by church leadership, i.e., the 15 gentlemen who know about this issue, they were sent to Sweden for a specific reason, and that was to give a presentation to certain members of the Swedish church there. Why were they supposed to give this presentation? Because it had come to the attention of the leadership of the church that there was a large group of members in Sweden who were becoming very, very concerned about historical issues relating to the church that they're finding out about. They're very upset about it, And these are not just your rank-and-file members. These include bishops. They include state presidents. They even include a general authority who was a member of the 70 named Hans Madsen. So Elder Turley and Elder Jensen are sent there in order to have a meeting with these members and to try and answer their questions. Well, going into detail about the Swedish rescue is beyond the scope of this podcast. Let me just say a couple of things about it. Number one, it was a colossal failure. One of the most remarkable things that Elder Turley said during the presentation when he was getting significant pushback from the Swedish audience of Latter-day Saints was to try and shield the leaders of the church from any blame for hiding this history from the members. And this is what he said. He said that the members, they needed to blame the historians, not the prophets. In other words, he's willing to take the blame as a church historian, but don't blame the prophets. It's not their fault. Here's the quote. Much of what you get about history comes from historians, from the people like me who do the best they can under the circumstances of their time. And then somebody else comes along later with new discoveries, new documents, and they rewrite it, okay? Don't put the responsibility on the prophet, but put it on ordinary people like me who do the best we know how to do it, but somebody will come along later and do it better, period. End of quote. So Elder Turley here is willing to take a bullet for the prophets as if the church historian's department is some kind of rogue organization within the church that does what it wants to do on its own and doesn't take its marching orders from the leaders of the church. But Elder Turley wants to not talk about that. He wants to pretend that it's the historian's fault. It's his fault for getting the history wrong, for hiding stuff from the members of the church, and that the leaders of the church, the prophets, were not involved in that at all. I don't think the Swedish members were buying it any more than Radio Free Mormon is buying it. The second thing that happened that I thought was of significance and is significant for this podcast is that this was a secret meeting. Remember how I told you at the beginning that the first response of the leaders of the church to this massive loss of church membership was to hide it, to not talk about it, to pretend it's not going on, at least as far as the general membership is concerned. Because the members who were brought into this meeting were specifically selected and invited. And once they were there, present in the church building where this meeting was held, they were told to keep the meeting a secret. And they were told not to tell anyone else what was discussed at the meeting. Why would they be told such a thing? Because, as I said, 
the church leaders did not want other people to know about the problem. They don't want the general membership to find out that people are leaving the church in droves and that they're doing it because of doubts with the church. No, this has got to be a secret meeting. It's bad enough to have this meeting and to have a general authority, Elder Jensen, fly to the other side of the world and take along with him Richard Turley, Elder Turley from the Church Historians Department. But it's not something that they want the general membership or the world to know about. So much for transparency. And while we're talking about rescues, the sweetest rescue was in November of 2010. This was largely to try and address members who were finding out negative things about church history. Well, later on, in June of 2015, June 15th, 2015 to be precise, there was another rescue that went on. That was called the Boise Rescue. At least that's what it's come to be called, the Boise Rescue. This is where Elder Oaks went out to Boise, and once again he took along with him Elder Turley. Elder Turley seems to be very popular to be brought along to these types of meetings, mainly because he stands as the token church historian who's supposed to know all this stuff and supposed to have the good answers. Well, I think it's likely he does know about all this stuff. Having good answers may depend upon the eye of the beholder, though. And in the Boise rescue, Elder Oaks and Elder Turley don't go out to talk to a group of saints, a limited group of saints, invited to a special meeting to talk about questions and issues they have regarding church history. No, instead they go out there to Boise because Boise constitutes a hotbed of people who are being drawn away from the church to the teachings of Denver Snuffer. So from this, we see that the church is facing disaffection from members for multiple different reasons. There are some people who are having trouble with church history and leave the church because they realize or believe the church is not what it claimed it was. They've been hiding things from them. They feel betrayed. They feel like they can't trust their leaders to be honest with them about church doctrine and church history anymore. So they just leave the church. But then over here with Denver Snuffer, you have a neo-Orthodox movement, the members of which... Go back to Joseph Smith, who believed Joseph Smith was a true prophet. But after that, when Brigham Young took over, the church went off the rails to the point where today the church is completely departed and apostatized from the original true church that Joseph Smith set up. And their whole goal is to get back to the original, pure, unadulterated version of the religion and follow the teachings of Joseph Smith, whom they still believe to be a true prophet, which is why I call it a neo-Orthodox movement within the LDS church. Well, the leaders of the church are not happy about this either, so they send Elder Oaks and Elder Turley out to Boise, June 15, 2015. Once again, the details of the Boise rescue are far too detailed for this podcast. Suffice it to say that it is clear from their presentation, which, as I say, was not to a small group of members specifically invited to this meeting. Rather, Elder Oaks and Elder Jensen sort of show up unannounced at a multi-stake meeting, and they give this presentation. Although they are careful never to mention the name Denver Snuffer, it is obvious from anybody who knows anything about Denver Snuffer's teachings, the fact that he's gaining such popularity in Boise as well as in other places that have formerly been church strongholds, that what they're talking about is trying to put Denver Snuffer down, call him a false prophet, say we are the true prophets and you need to follow us and not Denver Snuffer. That message permeates the entire presentation. So even though it's obvious that they're talking about Denver Snuffer, even though they're not mentioning him by name, later on when they're asked about it by the press and saying, well, were you coming out here to talk about Denver Snuffer? Because, you know, it sure sounded like you were coming out here to talk about Denver Snuffer. 
Elder Oak says, no, we weren't going out there to talk about Denver Snuffer at all. I just happened to have a free weekend in my schedule, and I thought, what the heck? Let's go out to Boise and just talk about stuff that I think is important for the church members there in Boise to know. No, it had nothing to do with Denver Snuffer. So once again, they go out there, they have a rescue attempt, and for whatever reason, they want to not be transparent. There it is again. They're not being transparent about why it is that they're going out there, even though anybody with half a brain knows that it was because of Denver Snuffer. But please note that the reason for this lack of transparency is important. Once again, church leaders do not want to acknowledge they're having a problem with losing church members. Once again, this ties into the church having pegged its truth claims to its growth. And once again, their strategy in dealing with the loss in church membership is to hide the fact they are losing church membership from the church membership and they are willing to obfuscate in order to do so. So what we have here are a couple of rescue efforts to different parts of the world. The first one to Sweden in 2010, this other one in Boise in 2015. And this starts to get to this segment of the podcast that talks about different things the church is doing because Elder Jensen was absolutely correct that the top 15 gentlemen in the church are aware of the problem that the church is hemorrhaging members and that something needs to be done to try and stop the bleeding. The reason the Swedish rescue is of interest to me is because it's in 2010, one year before Marlon Jensen makes the public comment about how there's an apostasy of members going on in the church that they haven't seen the likes of since 1837 in the days of Kirtland. And Elder Marlon Jensen's fault, if it be a fault, was that he answered the question, honestly. And once it was recorded, it began to be bandied about in the blogger knackle, and it started to gain traction, and more and more people began to find out about this. Remember, this is November 11th of 2011 when Elder Jensen makes this statement. Well, by January 18th, which is a couple of months later, the news of Elder Jensen's discussion of this apostasy began to circulate on some Mormon blogs, to the point where on January 28th of 2012, Reuters published a special report about Mormonism and the fact that they are having difficulty with their encounter with the modern era. The article quotes Elder Jensen as saying, There's no sense kidding ourselves. We just need to be very upfront with them, i.e. the younger generation. We just need to be very upfront with them and tell them what we know and give answers to what we have and call on their faith like we all do for things we don't understand. Well, this began to snowball to the point where two days later, January 30th, an interview with Elder Jensen is published in the Salt Lake Tribune. At this point, Elder Jensen seems to be trying to walk back some of the comments he made on November 11th at Utah State University, because obviously the leaders of the church are not happy about how frank he was in his answer there, which got recorded and then circulated and is now causing all of this publicity of the massive disaffection of members over church history. They didn't want this to become publicly known. So it sounds like Elder Jensen is beginning to try and walk this back a little bit in this Salt Lake Tribune January 30th article where he says that certain controversial issues, quote, haven't been emphasized often because they were not necessarily germane to what is taught at present. 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the heck that means. It sounds like sort of an excuse for why these controversial issues have been hidden by the church, and it doesn't really give an answer except these controversial issues haven't been talked about because they weren't necessarily germane to what is taught at present. Well, of course, what is taught at present is the sanitized, whitewashed, correlated version of church history. So if you're going to be teaching that, yes, the controversial issues are certainly not germane to teaching that correlated history. But he also indicates that efforts are underway to include such items in seminary and institute manuals. Elder Jensen goes on to say that the church has, quote, a strategy to get church history onto the web and that the church is working on an initiative to answer some of these more pressing questions. And when he says that, looking backward now, we can see that he's probably talking about the church essays which are going to begin to be published on the church website beginning in December of 2013. Once again, he's making the statement January 30th of 2012, so that's almost two years in the future, but he says that at that point the church is working on an initiative to answer some of these more pressing questions. Elder Jensen goes on to say that critics of the church are overemphasizing the exodus from the church. Now, this is the point at which I think that he's trying to walk back what he said in November 11th at Utah State University, where he said, we haven't seen an apostasy of this sort since the days of Kirtland and the top leaders of the church know about it and they're worried about it and they're concerned about it. No, he now says that critics are overemphasizing the exodus from the church. Well, I don't know how you would much overemphasize it beyond what Elder Jensen had said a couple of months earlier, but this article, which is still from the Salt Lake Tribune, January 30th, 2012, quotes from other scholars in the church, specifically Terrell Givens. And in this article, Terrell Givens seems to agree with the November 2011 Marlon Jensen, but disagree with the January 2012 Marlon Jensen. Terrell Givens says that the exodus of members from the church is a real crisis and an epidemic. Those are the phrases that he uses. Terrell Givens goes on to say that there is, quote, a discrepancy between a church history that has been selectively rendered through the church education system and Sunday school manuals, and a less flattering version universally accessible on the internet. So let me read that again, because basically what Terrell Givens is saying is that what is presented in church is completely different from what's available on the internet. He's using pretty scholarly language to say the church has been teaching this one-sided correlated sanitized version, but now the true facts are available on the internet, and the internet has the other side of the story, the story that is not sanitized, the story that reflects negatively on church history because it gives the rest of the story. Once again, this is what Terrell Givens says, that there is a discrepancy between a church history that has been selectively rendered through the church education system and Sunday school manuals, okay, that's the correlated version, and a less flattering version universally accessible on the internet. That's the rest of the story. The story that the church doesn't want the members to know about. Terrell Givens goes on, The problem is not so much the discovery of particular details that are deal-breakers for the faithful. The problem is a loss of faith and trust in an institution that was less than forthcoming to begin with. So what Terrell Givens is saying is that in spite of the issues that members have when they find out about the real church history, more critical to those members and what causes more members to leave than just those issues is the fact that because they're finding out these issues not from the church itself, but they have to find out from non-church approved sources and in fact from sources that the church tries to discourage members from reading, 
that causes them to lose trust in the church leaders. And if they can't trust the church leaders to tell them the full story, how can they trust the church leaders about anything, really? So that was on January 30th in the Salt Lake Tribune. On the same day, the Washington Post ran an article in which an author named Carrie Sheffield, who is a former Mormon, described her experience at Brigham Young University when she spiritually imploded. Why did she spiritually implode? Well, because while she was a student there, she encountered uncorrelated Mormon history and science, which led to her leaving the church. The next day, on January 31st, 2012, John DeLynn, whom you may know as the founder of Mormon Stories, he published the initial results of his survey. He had been working on a survey for some time now, which he had opened up for people to respond on the internet and answer a number of questions regarding their issues with the church. Most of these people had probably even left the church by this point. And it was titled, Causes and Costs of Mormon Faith. It was over 3,000 of these unbelieving Mormons now participated in the survey. And the findings indicated that the top four reasons that Mormons lost their faith were, one, a loss of faith in Joseph Smith, two, studying church history, three, ceasing to believe in the church's doctrine, and four, losing faith in the Book of Mormon. Now, this was a survey which John DeLynn has gone on record as stating that the results of this survey were not kept by him privately. They weren't just published on his website, but that they had been taken and delivered directly to the top leadership of the church. So this is information that the top leadership of the church had in its possession because they wanted to know about the results of this survey so that they could adequately assess what it was that they needed to do in order to minister to the members with these doubts, in order to keep them from leaving, or in order to get them back if they had already left. And as a result of the survey, John DeLynn stated something that sounds very similar to what Terrell Givens said. He said, Many respondents to the survey made the case that it wasn't necessarily the historical issue per se that led to their disbelief, but rather a sense of betrayal at what was often viewed as a dishonest approach to the church's history. So there it is again. This finding among many members of the church who have left the church isn't so much because of the particular issue, but because of the fact that they felt the church leadership was not being straight with them about the truth. That was on January 31st, 2012. On the same day, Latter-day Saint columnist Joanna Brooks wrote a blog titled Time for Mormons to Come to Terms with Church History. On the same day, January 31st, 2012, an article ran with KUTV titled Number of Faithful Mormons Rapidly Declining. In that article, it noted that there are more than 14 million members of the church worldwide, but according to the article, sociologists estimate active membership may be as few as only 5 million. Now, I told you this was snowballing. The very next day on February 1st, the Deseret News wrote an article in which they quote LDS scholar Richard Bushman on the issue. And this is what Richard Bushman says. I first became aware of the problems shortly after Rough Stone Rolling came out. Now, Rough Stone Rolling came out in 2005. So he's saying shortly after 2005, he became aware of these problems. Then Bushman heard that many other scholars were also being beset with queries from members of the LDS Church. He began to hear the same thing from ordinary Mormons who had friends or family who were having problems. 
And what are the problems? We all know what the problems are, the problems with church history. He also heard from people at BYU how it was a problem there as well. So it's pandemic in the church. Elder Bushman is starting to hear that Mormons throughout the church are having problems with church history. The article goes on. People were encountering things about church history and losing their faith, not just in Mormonism, but in God. He said, quote, I've been aware that the LDS Church has been concerned about this for quite a while, and the church historian, i.e. Marlon Jensen, has been saying for quite a while that we just need to get this information out. So now in February 1st, 2012, Richard Bushman is saying that this has been a problem for quite some time. The LDS Church has been concerned about it for quite a while, that there's this problem with the information getting out and people losing their faith because of it, and he says that the church historian, Marlon Jensen, is in favor of trying to make this information more available. Elder Marlon Jensen is also quoted in this article, and here's what he says. This is significant. Elder Jensen said that, quote, there has been more attrition over the last five or ten years. So Elder Jensen, when he made that comment in November of 2011 about the church hasn't seen this much apostasy since the days of Kirtland, he's not just talking about 2011. He's talking about the previous five or ten years, which means he's talking about since 2006, if we go back five years, or 2001, if we go back ten years. So Elder Jensen, who is in a position to know, says in this Deseret News article that this attrition has been going on since at least 2001 or 2006. And indeed, we would have to imagine that it would have to be going on for some period of time in order for the church to recognize that this is a real problem. Church growth will go up. Some years it will go down. Other years, it's an up and down kind of thing if you're talking about percentages. And so if it goes down one year, well, you can think it'll go up the next year. If it goes down two years, you can think it'll go up the next year. But when it starts going continually down and you're losing members and experiencing apostasy that hasn't been seen in the church since the days of Kirtland, to use the words of Marlon Jensen, that's going to be over a number of years before the church realizes, hey, we've got a problem on our hands. We need to do something about this. So what does the church do? Well, as we said, they tried to do a secret Swedish rescue in 2010. They tried to keep it off the radar. But now because Elder Jensen said it publicly in November of 2011, and it got real traction with all these news stories in late January and early February of 2012, now it is on the front burner and the cat is out of the bag. What is the church going to do about it? Well, the first thing that the church did was in early 2012, the church commenced the rescue program to help rescue those who had left the church and bring them back. The basics of this rescue program was that in each ward, the ward council was supposed to nominate 15 people who were less active or inactive members of the ward. They were supposed to write them down, write their names down, assign specific people to go out and talk to these inactive members, invite them back to church, see if they could get them to come back, see if we could get them to get the missionaries into their homes, see if we could make some forward progress with these inactive members and get them back to church. If the inactive member said, no, go take a hike, their name was stricken from the list and another member was put in. So there was a constant list of 15 members in every ward that the ward was supposed to make a priority in the ward council meetings of going out and meeting with and trying to bring them back to church. This was a program that was put in place. I don't know that it's still actually operating. I think that it worked as well as most programs in the church, which is pretty much not at all. 
But the significance of it is that it is a recognition on the part of church leadership that something needs to be done in order to try and stem the tide of members leaving the church and get them to come back to church. That's why this rescue program was initiated in the first place. It doesn't make any sense unless there's a huge problem with people leaving the church and an attempt being made by the church at the top levels to bring them back to church. Once again, the statistics since that time show that this rescue program was not successful, but the fact that they had the program at all is itself significant. Not only that, but talks begin to be given in general conference calling upon members of the church who have left the church to come back to church. And when this happens, typically there is a link being made, even in the talks, to people leaving the church because of issues they have with the church or because of church history. So I cite to these talks because it shows that church leadership is aware that members are leaving the church over issues with church history. They don't want to come out and say it, but once again, it doesn't make any sense to have these calls in general conference for members who have left the church to come back to church unless the church leadership knows that members are leaving the church. And it doesn't make any sense to have these calls to come back to church linked with doubts about the church unless the leadership of the church knows that people are leaving because they're having doubts about the church and about church history. Exhibit A in this category is Elder Uchtdorf from October General Conference 2013 in his talk titled, Come Join With Us. This is the Doubt Your Doubts Before You Doubt Your Faith talk. But prior to that, what Elder Uchtdorf said was this. Play the tape. The search for truth has led millions of people to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, there are some who leave the church they once loved. One might ask, if the gospel is so wonderful, why would anyone leave? And that is indeed a good question. Well, Elder Uchtdorf actually goes on to answer it. The first thing he says is reasons that people don't leave. Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it is not that simple. In fact, there is not just one reason that applies to the variety of situations. Now, when Elder Uchtdorf says that, he is actually parroting the results of the John DeLynn survey of 3,000 former Mormons that was sent to church leadership. Because in that survey, the two top reasons that people gave for leaving the church had to do with issues related to the Book of Abraham and issues related to the practice of polygamy or polyandry. The three lowest ranked reasons included reasons that some members and leaders have pointed to as reasons that some lose their faith i.e., I wanted to engage in behaviors viewed as sinful by the church. I wanted to sin. I was offended by someone in the church. Or a lack of meaningful friendships within the church. Those are the kinds of things that leaders of the church say members leave the church because of. And what the survey shows is that really those are the lowest ranked reasons. Actually, there are good reasons that people leave the church. There are reasons related to issues about church history, the book of Abraham, polyandry, and polygamy, that people leave the church. So knowing that that was in the survey that was submitted to top church leadership in early 2012, once again, let's revisit the words of Elder Uchtdorf in October of 2013, almost two years later. What is it he says? Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it is not that simple. 
In fact, there is not just one reason that applies to the variety of situations. So here it sounds like Elder Uchtdorf is keying his remarks off the survey from John DeLynn that was presented to church leaders. Elder Uchtdorf goes on. Some of our dear members struggle for years with the question whether they should separate themselves from the church. Later on in his talk, Elder Uchtdorf says, Some struggle with unanswered questions about things that have been done or said in the past. So here, Elder Uchtdorf is laying the groundwork for getting demoted from the First Presidency in January of 2018. What he is doing is he is actually acknowledging that people leave the LDS Church for legitimate reasons, and that some of those legitimate reasons include concerns about things that the church has said and done, and says that these could cause people to question. And then later on in this talk, Elder Uchtdorf gave this famous quote. We openly acknowledge that in nearly 200 years of church history, along with an uninterrupted line of inspired, honorable, and divine events, there have been some things said and done that could cause people to question. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. This is an amazing admission. Now, Elder Uchtdorf is not going to go into details. He's not going to say that the top reason people leave has to do with the Book of Abraham. The second most common reason people leave is because of issues with polygamy and polyandry. But he is going to talk about it generally. And he says, and to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders, and that's a critical addition that he puts in there, not just members, but he does include leaders. He doesn't say which leaders. He doesn't say what issues, but he includes leaders. And if we strip this down, what he's saying is, and to be perfectly frank, there have been times when leaders in the church have said or done things that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Now, you have to dissect those two sentences a little bit, but what he's actually saying is that leaders have said or done things that were not in harmony with our doctrine. What does that mean? Well, I think we know what it means, especially if you start talking about Brigham Young and Adam God or other examples that may come to mind. Dieter Uchtdorf is not going to go into that, but you've got to give him props for sacrificing his membership in the First Presidency in order to say this publicly and to the church. Now, he will back off of this and end up saying, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith and try and give it the most positive spin any German pilot possibly could. But nevertheless, he did admit that there are valid reasons to leave the church and that some of those reasons have to do with church leaders saying and doing things that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. And after having made these concessions in his speech, he gives the call to those members who have left the church because of these issues to come back. This is the call to come back that I'm talking about. He says this, To those who have separated themselves from the church, I say, My dear friends, there is yet a place for you here. Come and add your talents, gifts, and energies to ours. We will all become better as a result. So the connection here is calling members to come back 
to the church, which obviously shows a knowledge by Elder Uchtdorf that members are leaving the church in significantly large numbers enough to call for this kind of a invitation to come back to the church. And in the context of the entire talk, he's linking the people who have left the church who are leaving it for good reasons that have to do with church history, with things that church leaders have said or done. And indeed, this type of call for members to come back to the church was reiterated as recently as President Nelson's public comments on January 16th of 2018 when it was announced that he was going to be the new president of the church. What he did was he invited and pleaded with any who have stepped off what he calls the covenant path to come back. This is the quote. Now, if you have stepped off the path, may I invite you with all the hope in my heart to please come back. Whatever your concerns, whatever your challenges, there is a place for you in this, the Lord's church. So here, once again, President Nelson couples the call and the invitation to come back to the church with people's concerns or challenges. He doesn't say what those concerns or challenges are, but obviously people are leaving the church because of concerns that they have. He wants them to come back to the church. So once again, these two statements by Elder Uchtdorf in 2013 and by President Nelson in 2018 show that even as Elder Jensen said in November of 2011, the top leaders of the church do know that people are leaving the church in massive numbers because of doubts that they're having about church history, because of the easy access to information that has been allowed by the internet. As a side note, we could compare this kind of attitude by church leaders toward members who leave the church with that of Bruce R. McConkie from October General Conference of 1984 in his very famous The Caravan Moves On speech. Toward the end of that speech, Elder McConkie likens the church to a great caravan, and in this quote, he says what he thinks about people who leave the church. He doesn't say that the caravan should stop or we should try and minister to them or we should try and invite them to come back. No, what he says is this in 1984 when the church is growing dramatically. The church is like a great caravan, organized, prepared, following an appointed course with its captains of tens and captains of hundreds all in place. What does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the wheels of the, at the heels of the weary travelers or that predators claim those few who fall by the way? The caravan moves on. So here, Elder McConkie, at the height of church growth in 1984, gives a very different message about the kind of ministering that should be given by the church to those who have left the church, and that is no ministry at all. What does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the heels of the weary travelers? And what does it matter that predators claim those few who fall by the way? The caravan moves on. In other words, we're growing by leaps and bounds. You can leave the church if you want. We don't care about you. We're not stopping. We're not going to try and invite you to come back. Certainly, Elder McConkie isn't suggesting that. Why should he? Members are a dime a dozen in 1984. But now that we get into this decade, the current decade, the decade of the 2010s, the attitude of church leaders, in public at least, has changed with those public addresses by Elder Uchtdorf and Elder Nelson and other addresses that I don't really have time to cover now. I'm giving those as illustrative examples. 
of what's going on in the church, at least publicly. And I have to say at least publicly because all these three comments by Elder Uchtdorf and President Nelson and the 1984 Elder McConkie were said publicly. But in private meetings that the apostles attend that are not supposed to be broadcast, at least one apostle is still quoting this passage from Elder McConkie as recently as this year. The apostle to whom I refer is, surprise, surprise, Elder Bednar, who went to Houston, Texas to address some members of the church there. It is believed that the date of this was January 21st, 2018. It was recorded and then subsequently released by Mormon leaks. But note, if this is January 21st, 2018, which it appears to be, that this is only five days after President Nelson gave his call of conciliation and inviting members who have left the church to come back. No matter your concerns, no matter your challenges, please come back to the church is what President Nelson said on January 16th of 2018. And not only did President Nelson say this on January 16th of 2018, Elder Bednar was present in the same room. Remember, he's sitting over there to the side. You've got the first presidency at that desk making the announcement. You've got the other apostles to the side in two rows. Elder Bednar is present. He hears President Nelson make this public pronouncement an invitation to members that no matter what their concerns are, no matter what their challenges are, there is a place for them in the church. And yet within a week, only five days later, Elder Bednar is in Houston, Texas, addressing the saints there in what is not supposed to be a public pronouncement. And there, amazingly enough, Elder Bednar quotes Bruce R. McConkie from 1984 saying the exact same part of his talk that we quoted before. What does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the heels of the weary travelers? Or that predators claim those few who fall by the way? The caravan moves on. Once again, this shows a glaring inconsistency between what different church leaders say and also between what church leaders say publicly from what they say privately, or at least from what they say in statements that are supposed to be broadcast to the public versus statements that are not supposed to be broadcast to the public. As you may or may not know, these personal appearances by apostles and general authorities at the stake level or at the regional level are not supposed to be recorded. And given this type of inconsistency between the public voice versus the private voice, the outside voice versus the inside voice of church leaders, there's probably a good reason that they have that rule in place. So as I say, all of this information goes to show that Marlon Jensen was correct in what he said in November of 2011, that the top 15 do indeed know about and are aware of the massive defections among members of the LDS Church and that it is caused because of doubts raised by exposure to negative information about the church on the internet, the information that the church did not want the members to find out about. But not only what they are saying in this regard is important, but also look at what they are doing. Look at all the programs that church leaders have put into place in the last seven years in order to try to retain members. And also look at the ages they appear to be aiming these programs at. Because if you look at the ages that they're aiming these programs at to try and retain members, it's a huge signal as to what age it is that members are leaving the church predominantly. The church is obviously going to be focusing its programs at the age level 
where they are losing members in the greatest numbers. We've already talked about the rescue program that was initiated in early 2012, which seemed to have been church-wide. It wasn't really age-related. It had to do with 15 inactive members of the ward put on a list and reaching out to them personally, trying to get them to come back. But other programs have been initiated in the church as well. The classic example of the change in programs in the church, which seemed to be targeted toward keeping members in the church, was the lowering of mission ages, which was done in General Conference in October of 2012. It became effective in January 1st of 2013. At that General Conference, President Thomas S. Monson announced a change in the age of missionaries. I'm pleased to announce it effective immediately. All worthy and able young man who graduated from high school or his equivalent, regardless of where they live, will have the option of being recommended for missionary service beginning at the age of 18. Prior to that time and for decades, and I can say that with some authority because it used to be the rule even back when I went on my mission in 1979, boys had to be 19 years old before they went on their mission and girls had to be 21 years old before they could go on their mission. It seemed to serve the church well for decades to have these minimum age requirements for missionaries and yet in 2012, the same year that the rescue was announced and implemented, the church lowers the mission ages. It has been widely speculated since that time that the reason for lowering the mission ages was not to increase the number of missionaries, but rather to keep young men and young women, but especially young men, from falling away from the church during that critical period between graduating from high school and also graduating from seminary, usually at the age of 18, and having to wait around, get a job, possibly do a year of college, before going on their mission at the age of 19. During that time period, they are not under the direct control of the church and consequently can get into all sorts of mischief, especially being exposed to other ideas and other information which may lead them away from the church and lead them to a point where they are not willing to go on a mission once they do reach the age of 19. It is likely a similar thing is going on with the young ladies too, and that is why the decrease in age from 21 to 19. Now with the young ladies, I think that this has had, and the statistics bear out the fact this has had an increase in the number of sister missionaries going on a mission, because that's a two-year difference. Instead of graduating from high school and having to wait around until they're 21 to go on a mission, they can go on a mission when they are 19. And as is widely known, even from the time I went on my mission, that this age requirement was put in place for young women because really they were supposed to get married and start having little baby Mormons and not go on missions. But if they could not get married by the time they were 21, then they could go on a mission. So it was sort of a plan B for the sisters, but it is a plan A for the young men. Now, this lowering of mission ages had the consequence of increasing dramatically the number of missionaries in the field. However, the statistics show that there was not a commensurate increase in convert baptisms. Far from it. And now that this initial surge is over, the number of missionaries in the field is declining. Now that is just the natural consequence of lowering the mission age. And I think that most people who were observing the scene and commenting on it knew that this was going to happen. In other words, if you already have a certain number of missionaries in the field who are missionaries who had to wait until they were 19 in order to go on their mission, and then in 2013, when this new program was implemented, suddenly that mission age gets lowered 
now you're suddenly going to have out in the field not only the missionaries who had to wait until they were 19, but another group of missionaries who now can go when they are 18 and sisters who can go when they're 19. So during the next couple of years, you're going to have a surplusage of missionaries in the field while both sets of missionaries are serving, the younger and the ones who had to wait. And then as the ones who had to wait until they were 19 begin to go home, that number is naturally going to begin to recede. And we see that with the February 1, 2018 news release from the Church News, in which the Church announces mission adjustments. Now, it's an interesting headline. And once again, this is a classic example of LDS Church transparency. What they are really announcing is that 14 missions are closing, but they can't quite bring themselves to say that. So instead, they say, Church announces mission adjustments. Five new missions will open in 2018. That's the lead on the byline. Five new missions will open in 2018. 19 others will merge with other missions. Now, when it says 19 others will merge with other missions, that means they're closing. Let me give you an example of just the reverse. In 1980, during the time that I was on my mission in Japan, I was called originally to the Kobe Japan mission. But while I was there, church growth was, as I've mentioned before, phenomenal. And because of that, the mission that I was in split. So the same area of the mission was used, but it was divided in half along a river. And out of what had been the Kobe Japan mission was now created not only the Kobe Japan mission, but also the Osaka Japan mission. And whereas there had been around, say, 200 missionaries in the Kobe Japan mission, now there are 200 missionaries in the new Kobe Japan mission and 200 more missionaries in the Osaka mission. So the same area has not 200 missionaries as it had before, but 400 missionaries. That's what growth looks like when missions split. Once again, that was back when the church was going great guns, but now the opposite is happening, and now missions are being closed. Instead of the church announcing that missions are being closed, they're saying that mission adjustments are happening, and 19 missions will merge with other missions. So when missions merge with other missions, it's the opposite of when they split. Instead of it representing church growth as it did back in 1980, now it represents church shrinkage. So going into this article, and remember, this is just from the 1st of February, 2018. This is breaking news. Today, the church announces boundary realignments for 19 missions, as well as the creation of five new missions. With the change, there will be 407 missions. Now, that's as close as they can get to actually saying what's really going on. Because prior to this, they say that in October, the church had announced it would adjust the number of its 421 missions. Now it's 407 missions. So it recognizes that with the opening of five missions, plus the closing, or excuse me, the realignment of 19 missions, that results in a net loss of 14 missions. So the church has now gone from 421 missions to 407 missions. And they list the missions that are opening and the missions that are closing. There seems to be a significant difference between the two because the five missions that are opening appear to be primarily in third world countries, whereas the missions that are closing look more like they are in first world countries. The five missions that are opening in July of 2018 are in number one, Brazil, number two, the Ivory Coast, number three, Nigeria, number four, the Philippines, and number five, Zimbabwe. Three of these are in Africa, one in the Philippines, and one in Brazil. I think this is reflective of the fact that church growth is going to be seen primarily going on in the next several years in Africa. The question is whether the church growth in Africa will make up for the church shrinkage in other areas of the world. 
Then they list the 19 missions that in July 2018 will merge with adjoining missions. In other words, the missions that will close. These are not in Africa. These are in Australia, Bulgaria, California, two in California, England, Greece, Illinois, two in Mexico, Mississippi, New York, Ohio, Portugal, Romania, Russia, Spain, Ukraine, Utah, and Federal Way, Washington. So here I think we can see a pattern that not only is the total number of missions shrinking in the LDS Church, but the place where they're growing and being created is primarily in third world countries, whereas the place where they are shrinking and being closed is in first world countries. I cannot say for certain why this would be. However, I think one of the factors may have to do with the availability of the internet in first world countries versus the availability of the internet in third world countries. In other words, there may be a direct correlation between church growth and information about the church being available on the internet. This article goes on to talk about the total number of missionaries. It says that changes to mission boundaries are common. Well, that's certainly true. It's the fact that merging them is not what has been common before. It has been splitting, not merging. Since President Thomas S. Monson announced in 2012 the change in the ages for missionary service, the church has created 76 new missions to accommodate a surge of growth in only a few years from 58,000, so it was 58,000 in 2012, to 88,000 missionaries. But that number of missionaries did not remain at 88,000. Instead, the article states, the initial wave of missionaries has since receded to about 68,000 missionaries as anticipated. So at this point now, the number of missionaries was originally 58,000 in 2012. It popped up to 88,000 with this surplusage of missionaries in the field. It has now receded to 68,000 missionaries as anticipated. Now, it is true that many people did anticipate this happening because it was quite obvious that there was going to be a temporary glut of missionaries on the market and that that would recede as time went on. The fact that the number of missionaries would recede from 88,000 to 68,000 was not, repeat, not anticipated by one of the apostles of the LDS Church. I am speaking of Elder Holland. Elder Holland thought that the number of missionaries would continue to increase to 100,000 and that the baseline of missionaries would be 100,000 by the year 2019. This from a Salt Lake Tribune article published March 4, 2015 with the headline, LDS Apostle Jeffrey R. Holland predicts 100,000 Mormon missionaries by 2019. The article leads off with this, The LDS Church expects to have more missionaries than ever in its global proselytizing force by 2019, according to a top Mormon leader. Now they quote Elder Holland, We're projecting out, probably within four years. So once again, this is March of 2015, projecting out four years from 2015 would make it 2019, i.e. next year. We're projecting out, he doesn't say who we are, but he says we're projecting out probably within four years, Apostle Jeffrey R. Holland told a radio interviewer, the baseline number for the missionary force will be something around 100,000. So contrary to the recent church news story about the mission closures, Elder Holland was not one of those who anticipated that the number of missionaries would decrease. He actually anticipated that it would continue to increase. Instead, it has gone from 88,000 to 68,000, a decrease of 20,000 missionaries. So it appears on this issue, at least, Jeffrey Holland is not exactly a prophet, seer, or revelator. So once again, in summary about the lowering of the mission ages, the church goal appears to be to take young Mormons 
who are in high school and are going to seminary every day, who are in their LDS households, hopefully, with two faithful LDS parents, to not give them that extra year to be out in the world and experiencing things and finding out things and learning things which may detract from their faith, but to go directly from the seminary program in high school to the missionary program in the field. And then from the missionary program in the field to getting married as soon as possible. Now, the church has since time immemorial been beating the drum that return missionaries need to be getting married as soon as possible. That part hasn't changed, but it appears that the church is losing returned missionaries. Not only are they losing young men and possibly young women before they go on their mission, they're also losing them after they get home from their mission. They are not running out to get married in the temple. Instead, they are becoming disaffected. And the reason I say that is because there was another program that was instituted in July of 2015, and that was the post-mission interview. So think about the timing of this. In 2012, October, the missionary age is lowered. It becomes effective the next year. It's really going to become mostly effective in June of next year when the new crop of missionaries begin graduating from high school at age 18 and immediately enrolling in the mission force. Then this huge surge of new missionaries is out in the mission field from 2013 to 2015 and now in 2015, the church announces this new tool. It's a post-mission interview. And briefly stated, what this program is supposed to do is to keep return missionaries from leaving the church. It's supposed to keep them in the church. It's supposed to keep them in full activity. It's supposed to be the bridge between a mission and getting married in the temple. So this was announced, as I say, in July of 2015 by the Church News. In the article that appeared in the Church News, it says the following. The First Presidency has announced a new online course called My Plan. That's the name of the course. My Plan. To help returning missionaries use their mission experiences to plan for continued lifelong discipleship. The program will be available in August 2015 at myplan.lds.org. What is My Plan? The course involves eight interactive lessons available on the missionary portal. The first lesson is to be completed in between receiving a mission call and entering the MTC, the second at the halfway point in the mission, and the remaining six during the missionary's final transfer. So, once again, this is a number of lessons that are supposed to have a missionary use their experiences on the mission in order to continue to be faithful and active in the church after they return from their mission. It is shared with their mission president. They talk about it at the end of the missionary's mission. And then it is transferred over to the missionary's bishop and stake president upon the missionary's return from his mission so that the missionary can be monitored and contacted and reminded, if necessary, of the goals the missionary set to keep the missionary active in the church so that the missionary will not fall away. Once again, a new program in the church aimed, obviously, at keeping return missionaries in the church. Why is the church coming up with a program to keep return missionaries in the church? The answer seems obvious because too many missionaries are leaving the church after going on their mission. Another program instituted by the church, in which we've talked about a little bit before, in which my listeners are certainly familiar with, is the Church Essays on Controversial Subjects in Church History and with Church Doctrine. These began appearing in December of 2013, on the church website. So this degree of transparency, and I use that in air quotes, in the church is unprecedented to have essays actually dealing with these controversial issues published on the church website. Now these essays are obviously written from an apologetic point of view. Nevertheless, the church is admitting to things in these essays that in prior generations the church described as anti-Mormon lies. 
So in 40 years, I have lived to see the anti-Mormon lies of yesterday become the church-admitted truths of today, and all by means of these essays. Now, these essays are three clicks deep on the church website. They were never announced on the front page like pretty much everything else is that the church wants to announce. For instance, the recent announcement of the first presidency was blasted all over the front page of the church website, and it was up there for over a week. Nothing like that happened with the release of these church essays. They are difficult to find. In fact, it is common to hear people have difficulty finding them, even when the people who are having difficulty finding them know they exist and are trying to find them. And I just want to give you an example here, because I think it's kind of amusing how difficult it is to find these, even when you know where they are. So I've got my computer up. I'm going to the church website. Pulling up to the church website, there's a picture on the front of a First Presidency message, Three Ways to Remember the Savior. Now we go up here on the bar at the top, Scriptures and Study. We go down, there's four columns, Scriptures, Prophetic Teachings, Learn More, and Helpful Resources. If we go to the third column, Learn More, go down to Gospel Topics. That's where we're going to find them. So here's the first click from the main webpage. Now we're down to gospel topics. And at the top of this page is a nice picture of a young lady studying her scriptures, and it says gospel topics on it. Now we start scrolling down, and we have the alphabet. Apparently, there are things that are put in alphabetical order, and if we have an idea of what it is we want to look up, and we have an idea of what the first letter of that might be, we can just click on that letter of the alphabet. But the effect of this alphabet at the top, which is in a column from top to bottom, is that it makes a person who's actually looking for these essays not able to see them when he pulls up the gospel topics. Instead, he sees this picture, and then he sees this alphabet, and he has to start scrolling down like I'm doing now. It then says, at the bottom of the alphabet, each gospel topic includes a brief overview sharing what Latter-day Saints believe about the topic, links to resources that will help you learn more about the topic, and ideas to help you teach it to others. Learn more about the role of the Holy Ghost in your pursuit of truth and how to become a more self-reliant gospel learner. Then, beneath that, it says Featured Topics. You really should follow along with this. It's really remarkable. Because they have Featured Topics, and then they have three images, and underneath one is Are Mormons Christian? Underneath the other one is Love, and underneath the other one is Religious Freedom. Now, typically, on a page, when you have Featured Topics at the end, this looks like the bottom of the page. It looks like this is the end. But it's not the end on this page. You have to continue to scroll down below what appears to be the end, Oh, wait a second. There's something more. It's called the Gospel Topics Essays. No wonder it's hard to find these things. They're intentionally designed to be difficult to find. And the Gospel Topics Essays now says, Recognizing that today so much information about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can be obtained from questionable and often inaccurate sources, officials of the Church began in 2013 to publish straightforward, in-depth essays on a number of topics. So here the apologetic bent of the essays commences, even in its introduction, because it says the reason that they were written is because so much information is available about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the information that is available is questionable and often inaccurate. Therefore, the Church is writing these essays to set the record straight. Well, actually, what the essays do, by and large, is they admit to the truth of the accusations and the factual information that is largely available to members of the Church, but then try and put, as best they can, an apologetic slant to it, even as this introduction does. But by the way, the Gospel Topics essays are not on this page. Instead, there is a link 
where it says at the end, in-depth essays on a number of topics, that is a link. So now we're one click deep. We've had to scroll down to the bottom of the page to beyond what appears to be the bottom of the page to find gospel topics essays mentioned. And now we have to click on another link to get to the gospel topics essays. We click on this link. Oh, gospel topics essays. It's the same picture of the girl studying your scriptures, but now it says gospel topics essays. And here we have a long introduction to the gospel topics essays. And you actually have to go on down and scroll down and it says essay topics. Okay, so now we find the essay topics. And the first one is are Mormons Christian? So we click on that one. Boom. That's the third click that we have to go into the church website in order to find these essays are Mormons Christian. They of course start with are Mormons Christian because that's an easy one. They are in alphabetical order, but are Mormons Christian ends up being first alphabetically. And it goes on to list the rest of the essays. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven essays. Well, wait a second. I thought there were more essays than eleven. Well, there are because when you get down to plural marriage in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, if we click on that one, what we come to is a general overview. Remember, there were three essays written about plural marriage. One is sort of a general overview. And then another one is specifically about Nauvoo-era polygamy related to Joseph Smith, which also involves polyandry. And then another one related to polygamy in Utah, more under Brigham Young. But I think experience has shown that Joseph Smith's polygamy is one of the more troubling aspects for church members to swallow and causes a great deal of doubt and concern among members of the church who find out about it. Therefore, Joseph Smith's polygamy is buried not three clicks deep on the church website, but four clicks deep because there is another click where you have to go to read that essay. In this general essay about polygamy, if you can bring yourself to read down a couple of pages, there is a link that says, if you would like to learn more about the beginnings of plural marriage in the church, click here. Here's the fourth click. And now we finally get to plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo. So that has been a trip down the rabbit hole in order to find the essays on the church website. They're not easy to find, but once you know where they are and if you're determined to find them, you can do so. And finally, when we're looking at all these programs within this context of trying to keep members, especially young members, from leaving the church, we can perhaps better contextualize this new program that began just in 2018 and was announced last December 2017 that allowed young Aaronic priesthood holders to do baptisms for the dead in the temple. Prior to this time, the ordinance of doing baptisms for the dead had to be done by a Melchizedek priesthood holder. That is the way it has been really since the inception of baptisms for the dead. But suddenly, last year, 2017, God finally got around to telling his leaders in the LDS church that you don't have to be a Melchizedek priesthood holder in order to perform baptisms for the dead. Instead, an Aaronic priesthood holder can do baptisms for the dead as long as that Aaronic priesthood holder is a priest. In other words, as long as that Aaronic priesthood holder is 16 years old. Prior to 2017, the Aaronic priesthood holders could not perform the baptisms. They just had to be the subject of being baptized, just like the girls were. So they could be baptized, but they could not baptize. Now they can baptize. And the girls are not left out of this because with this announcement, which became effective January 1st of 2018, the young men could baptize as long as they were 16 and ordained priests. They could baptize others. The young women may be asked to assist with tasks in the temple baptistry, currently performed by adult sisters, serving as temple ordinance workers 
or volunteers, which means basically they can hand out towels to dry off to these young men who are working up such a sweat baptizing others for the dead. And Elder Quentin L. Cook is quoted in this article making this announcement, where he actually gets close to admitting the real reason for having this change to allowing the young men to do baptisms for the dead now. These changes, he says, will allow increased preparation and participation in the great work of salvation for the dead. Now, that much goes without saying, but I think it's important to notice that what church is focusing on is changing the program so that the young men can have an increased participation and preparation in temple work, which I think the church wants and hopes and prays will carry over into increased participation outside the temple in the church and get them on that road to being a missionary after they graduate from high school, then married after they get back from their mission and go through the My Plan program that was announced in 2015 and hopefully get them sealed up in these covenants in the temple and start making little Mormons and multiplying and replenishing the LDS church. Now, I've gone over all these different programs because I think it is very interesting to look at them in context of what is going on. It seems clear that these programs are all created in order to try and stop the mass exodus of members leaving the church. And these programs end up being aimed at pretty much every age they can possibly aim them. They have them aimed at the young boys, 16-year-old boys, the priests who are in high school, allowing them to do baptisms for the dead in the temple. They're aimed at the young people between high school and their mission by lowering the mission age from 19 to 18 for young men and 21 to 19 for young women. They are aimed at return missionaries who once get off their mission, not allowing them the chance to get off the track and become inactive with the My Plan program announced in 2015. And so when you look at all of these programs, all of which have been instituted and created and implemented in the past five to seven years, it seems clear beyond dispute that the leadership of the church know that members are leaving the church in droves, that a large portion of these members who are leaving are young members and are therefore creating programs in order to try and stop the bleeding. Now, the reason I bring up all these programs and all of this information is not only because I think it's interesting, but also to lay the groundwork for part three of this podcast, which will be coming out soon. In part one of this podcast, we showed that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints tied its truth claims to its phenomenal growth. In part two of this podcast, we have shown that the leaders of the church, all top 15 men, in the words of Elder Jensen, know that members of the church are leaving in droves largely due to problematic history that they're finding out about through access to the internet. And in part three of this episode, we will show that not one, but two apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ have chosen to respond to this situation, not by admitting the truth to the members, but instead by dissembling, prevaricating, what lesser minds would call lying about the growth of the church. And very recently, a third apostle has chosen to try and solve the problem by changing the definition of the word growth itself. We'll get to that in part three. So fasten your seatbelts because part three is going to be a bumpy podcast. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.